Our Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful once again to be able to open up Your Holy Word. Father, we know that when Your Word is opened, You speak. And so, Father, help me, Your servant, to be clear, Lord, to be accurate, to, Lord, um, remember that I am a broken man preaching to broken sinners, saved by grace. And so, Father, help us all to be humbled by the truth of your word so that we would be driven to loving obedience out of a heart of gratitude for all that you've done for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We've been walking through this great book together. Titus chapter 3. And I want to read verses 1 through 11. And the word of God says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. As we've been seeing in the book of Titus, Paul has been going back and forth instructing Titus to instruct the congregation as to the conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes, and this is noteworthy for us as believers, he goes from uh, responsibility and duties in the world and before one another in the body of Christ to always talking about the foundation for their godly living, which is what God has done in having saved them. Obedience is always a response to what God has already done in our lives, to His saving grace. And then out of gratitude and love to the Lord for what He has done, then we respond in loving obedience to His commands and to walking in holiness, of course. And even in the, in the passage that I just read in verses 1 through 2, we see this, that He calls all believers to live in a certain way in the world, um, even in particular before the uh, governing authorities, but to the, before the world at large. And then he gives the foundation for that, for fulfilling those responsibilities in verses 3 through 7, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done in having saved us as sinners through Jesus Christ. This, he says in verse 8, this gospel is a trustworthy statement. And Titus is to focus on preaching the gospel and the implications of the gospel, godly conduct, he says. And concerning these things, the gospel and godly conduct, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, i.e. Christians, will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And then, if that's what Titus is to focus upon, and to zero the congregation in on the gospel and that godly conduct that flows from the gospel. He talks in verses 9 through 11 about those things that that Titus needs to be careful with, and by implication and application, the rest of the church. He says, in contrast to focusing, speaking confidently, verse 8, of the gospel and godly conduct, he says in verse 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He is to avoid these things as well as what we're going to see factious people in the church to rightly engage factious people in the church in verses 10 through 11. And we said last week that if we are going to be people who preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, then we need to give heed to what Paul is instructing Titus here in verses 9 through 11. One of the beautiful benefits 
of the atoning work of Jesus Christ is obviously first and foremost the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as a beautiful benefit of that reconciliation before our Heavenly Father now as believers, if you've turned from your sins and you've trusted in Christ, one of the beautiful benefits is unity with other brothers and sisters who have also bowed the knee to King Jesus. And that is beautiful. And that is just a wonderful thing to exult in as believers. The issue of unity with other brothers and sisters. And we are one family now under our Heavenly Father. And unity is very important to our Heavenly Father. That is the preserving of unity. So much so that Jesus in the upper room in John chapter 17, one of the things that He prays for, for His disciples and all future disciples, is that they would be functioning in a, as one. That they would be unified. He prays in John seventeen eleven that they might be one even as we, Father, are one. That they would reflect with one another the beautiful oneness that exists within the Godhead between the Son and the Father. And then in verses 21 through 23, he also prays that they might be one, that future disciples, not only his present disciples in the upper room in John 17, but also future disciples would be one. In chapter 17, verse 22, that they may be perfected in unity, these believers and future believers. Unity was important to Jesus. And Jesus was praying for a functional unity. Because for those who were there already, who had put their faith in Jesus Christ, minus Judas Iscariot, they were already one in the fact that they had believed in the Messiah and who He was. Even if they didn't understand the full implications and ramifications of Jesus' work soon on the cross. Jesus is praying that they would function as one. And He prays this because He knows that soon that they will be challenged not to be unified. He's going to go to the cross and all of them will turn their backs on Him temporarily and on one another. They will not function as one under uh, Jesus. Yet because of God, they will return, right? So He prays for them there that God would keep them. That God would protect them. And indeed, God the Father did protect every single one of them except the son of perdition who according to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Judas Iscariot, went and he betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ. But God protected them in unity. See, Jesus prayed that because he knew that there will always be challenges to walking in unity, to functioning as one. And so did Paul. And so as we said last week, the reality is, is that because we are sinners and imperfect, Satan, beloved, when there's a good work taking place in the people of God, amongst the people of God, Satan will always try to bring disunity and dissension in the church. And so that's what Paul is addressing and instructing Titus here in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, about how the church is to deal with problems and problem people that arise in the church in order to preserve the unity that is dear to the heart of Jesus Christ. And so last week we saw that we are, if we are going to preserve Christ-honoring unity in the church, then there are two practices that this passage tells us are needed, beginning with those who lead the church. First of all, we must wisely avoid divisive issues. Now remember, we said that this does not, does not, does not mean that we cannot talk about hard things. That we cannot express concerns to one another. That we cannot ask questions. That we cannot even disagree on certain matters. Unity is not uniformity. We are not all robots who must all look like robots and all think the same exact way about every single little issue. And so unity is not uniformity. What this does mean is that as we disagree and as we discuss and, and question things and, and wrestle with things from the Word of God, we must wisely avoid getting caught up with secondary or peripheral issues that divide us. Things that detract away from the progress of the gospel and the holiness that God requires of each one of us. And that's what he says in verse 8. Titus, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. This is in contrast, that word but in verse 9 is in contrast to those things that Titus is to encourage the congregation to focus on in verse 8, namely the gospel and godly conduct that flows from the gospel. 
In contrast to that, don't be focused on peripheral secondary issues that detract away from exalting Christ on this earth as, as a church. Avoid, wisely avoid divisive issues. But this morning, we want to see the second practice that is needed if we are to preserve unity in the church. And it is this. We must lovingly deal with divisive people. We must lovingly deal with divisive people in verses 10 through 11. And I say lovingly because there are people, and undoubtedly there will be people here this morning, who will hear what this text has to say and the implications of this text, and who think that dealing with sin in the church is judgmental, that it's mean-spirited, that we are being unkind to follow these, these instructions here, that we are being unloving. After all, who are we to judge? Who are we to point our finger at somebody else? Hey, no one is perfect. No one is perfect. We all have flaws. We all have sins. And I would say amen to that, right? We all have flaws and sins. Nobody is perfect. But the truth is, beloved, that this passage and many other passages teach us that dealing with sin is absolutely loving. It is loving. Why? Because like a disease, sin is harmful. It is destructive. It, it hurts people, including the, sin, the unrepentant, ongoing sinner himself or herself. It hurts the church. It attacks the holiness of the church and the purity of the church that God requires. And ultimately, the greatest thing is that it counters the glory of God. And so if we care for one another, hear me, if we truly love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ then we must lovingly deal with sin in the church. Now, just like there will be the danger of divisive issues in the church, there will always be the danger of divisive people who either come in from outside the church to cause division in the church or arise from within the church to cause division and strife. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 as he is bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders after having spent some three plus years with them, ministering amongst them with tears and all of that from house to house, he warns the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, and he says, listen to me, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. In other words, be like watchmen. Be vigilant, elders, Ephesian elders, because they will come in, those who are savage wolves from without and arise from within, who will seek to lead the people away from Jesus, away from exalting Christ, away from the gospel of Jesus, and following after them. That is why you only follow individuals and people in so long as they are following Jesus Christ. Amen? In so long as they're following Christ and His Word. So Paul warned them about this danger of divisive people arising from within. He was warning them of the impending danger from without and from within. And we are warned in the same way here. Rather than the church simply ignoring divisive people, pretending that they will go away automatically, or taking divisive people lightly. The church, beloved, beginning with her leaders, is called to lovingly deal with divisive people. Why? For the sake of their soul. For the sake of the, of the purity and the holiness of the church. For the sake of the glory of God. Amen? And for the sake of our witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ on this earth. And so what are we called to do in order to preserve unity? Look at verse 10. Reject a factious man or person, you might say. It's a generic term being used there. It could be a factious woman. After a first and second warning, knowing, verse 11, that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. The first question that we need to ask ourselves right, right off the bat in verse 10 is, who is this factious man or person? Who is this factious person? This is the only occurrence of the adjective form of this word here, translated factious in the New American Standard. The word in the Greek is, is a word from which we get our English word heresy or literally heretic. Heretic. 
The King James Version translates it this way. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. And we know what a heretic is, right? A heretic is someone who does not believe in or affirm what, is, what we would say is orthodox cardinal doctrine. What is, what is believed by conservative Christianity rightly interpreting the word of God. A person who teaches and promotes false teaching that is contrary to the truth. That's how we, what we know a heretic to be. And this is what the word came to mean later on in church history, certainly. And this aspect of, of the factious person here, as translated in the New American Standard, as a, a person who promotes, believes in and promotes false teaching is, is certainly part of the makeup of this individual, especially as you look at the context of the book of Titus. We saw in chapter 1 that Titus is to affirm qualified elders who are, who are men of the book, who are able to defend sound doctrine so that they might exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict, which in their context were the false teachers that were beginning to infiltrate the church. So certainly this aspect of false teaching is very much a part of this uh, person's uh, um, uh, sin, if you will. However, it is broader than this. And it is more all-encompassing than this. In fact, the root of the word translated factious in the New American Standard describes one who possesses the power of choice. It speaks of a, of a self-chosen party or sect. What this text is talking about, and this individual is a, this is a schismatic individual. This is a person who creates division in the church. This is a person who is contentious. This is a person who is argumentative who loves to argue about secondary matters, who loves to pick a fight about every, uh, every disagreement, which is why uh, Paul just instructed Titus in verse 9 to avoid such controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. They don't help Titus. They are fruitless. But the factious individual loves to focus on those things that detract away from the gospel and holiness. This is a self-willed person. This is why back in chapter 1, one of the qualifications for being an elder is that you are not to be a self-willed individual who wants to push your agenda forward. This is a self-willed, independent spirit kind of an individual who chooses a path for himself and worse, creates a following in the church. Thus, a divisive person, not just in his belief or her belief, but more comprehensively, a divisive person as it pertains to behavior and conduct, because people then follow that person. One commentator says this, quote, Heresy, as it is now understood, puts focus on wrong or false doctrines that are professed by people, whereas the focus here is on the negative behavior of these people that for whatever reason gives rise to divisions and splits, end quote. So the root idea here has to do more comprehensively and more all-encompassing with a divisive person, a factious person. In fact, other translations bring out this divisive aspect the more comprehensive divisive aspect. The NIV calls this person a divisive person. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. The ESV puts it this way. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And the New King James Version puts it this way. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. This broader meaning of divisive comes out in the noun form of the word, which appears in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 19, where Paul says to the Corinthians, For there must also be factions among you, meaning divisions, so that those who are approved may be evident among you. And if you remember that one of the big issues in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, that Paul addresses right off the bat in chapter 1, is that in Corinth there were those who had picked sides. Some were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. And if you can believe it, even Jesus was one of the options. He was one option amongst many. And so there was division or factions. People had chosen sides and there were individuals who did not mean for this to take place, but there were people that were following them. In that church. And of course, I can imagine that Cephas and Apollos were saying, hey, stop following us for crying out loud. It's all about Christ, which was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. It's 
It's about exalting and elevate Christ. And in so long as people are following, Je- uh, somebody's following Jesus, then yes, you follow and imitate them just as they follow Christ. One pastor writes this, quote, Paul's primary concern in this text is not so much a person's, person's theology or teaching, but their behavior. Because of what they believe and are holding fast to, they are causing divisions. They are being disruptive because they are self-opinionated. This is why the factious person is destructive to the church, because they are caught up in things that are unprofitable and worthless. They draw the saints away from Christ, away from what is central, to things that will not profit them. They are divisive and and destructive. They cause disunity, destroy peace, and ruin a church's testimony." Commenting on the factious man in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, John MacArthur writes this, quote, Now this certainly could refer to those who teach unsound doctrine because they would be factious, that is divisive. They would separate, they would be a problem in the church, they would be a sectarian influence, but really it's beyond that. It goes beyond those who would engage in some wrong doctrine. Those who would split the church over a doctrinal issue. It doesn't confine itself to that. It's anybody who tends to divide, to fracture the fellowship, to tear the seamless robe, as it were, of the garment of the unity of the church. The church, as you well know, has always struggled against false doctrine and always struggled to maintain unity. It will always be assaulted by people propagating lies, and it will always be assaulted by people who try to divide it." Well, what do we do with a divisive person? What do we do with a divisive person? Look at verse 10. Reject. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Paul commands, this is an imperative, present tense command. Paul commands Titus to reject the factious or divisive person. And the command here, reject, is as strong as it sounds. Even stronger. It means to shun. It means to stay away from. It means to reject in the sense of no longer having fellowship with that person on an ongoing basis. And you say, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? It's very unloving. That's not very kind. Well, not if you consider what they are doing. Consider that they are dividing the church of God. Consider that they are influencing the church away from Jesus, her Lord, and her all-sufficiency to peripheral secondary matters. Consider the fact that they are detracting the church away from the gospel of Jesus Christ on earth. And they are, they are attacking the witness of the church on earth. Consider the fact that they are bringing harm to God's people. They are hurting God's people. The people, beloved, that Jesus died for on the cross. The people that he purchased with his own blood. The people that God owns, that God loves, that God treasures, that God cherishes, that He is a heavenly Father to His children. Consider that if you think this is too harsh. And let the weight of that sink in. God has righteous indignation, holy, pure, perfect, righteous indignation against those who will come to harm and destroy His church and attack His children. Some of you know that we have a five-year-old little girl who is a special needs little girl. Her name is Chloe. And Chloe has a condition derived from a mutation of her fifth chromosome. And so she's really big. She looks like an eight or nine year old, but she has the development of a two or three year old. And so whenever we go to the playground, which she loves going to the playground, Chloe is very outgoing. She loves being around people. She loves going to the park. And um, whenever we go to the park, she'll go and hang out with kids and she'll play with kids. And right away, as she gets off of the car and she goes into the playground, everybody's her best friend. Everybody is no context. She doesn't need any context or any relationship with anyone. It's like, are you my best friend? Right? You want to play with me? Hey, let's go play. They might be playing something else and she wants to go take them to play something else as well or join what's going on. And you know, certain kids are kind, but most kids are not. And they show their unkindness, whether by looking at her in a weird kind of a way, like, who is this weirdo girl? Or they kind of look at her in a mean way. Or maybe they avoid her. They run with their little friends away from her. Or they just start making fun of her. And sometimes we'll intervene, not by confronting the other kids, but just by trying to train Chloe, 
know how to handle that kind of stuff. But sometimes we'll just stay back and see how she's able to apply some of the things that we're trying to teach her because she needs to learn to, to be able to um, function in society well, even within her condition. And so we'll do that. But, you know, sometimes I'm sitting there and there's this sense of righteous indignation that takes place in my heart. And my desire is to, is to intervene and protect and defend someone who I see as helpless in that moment. That, yeah, she's got her own sins, but there are people that are potentially not treating her well. And there's that, that righteous indignation that a parent feels. Well, imagine a perfectly holy heavenly father and the type of indignation that he feels. If parental indignation is sometimes, is sometimes tainted by sin and selfishness and pride and all of that, God is not. It's perfect and holy. And so part of, of what is taking place here and what Paul is instructing Titus is this is the heart of God and how people who are dividing his church are to be dealt with. Because he doesn't like division within his, his church. And notice in verse 10, it's not as if they have not been given the chance to stop. Verse 10 says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. This person has been warned. They have been given the opportunity to stop their sin, to do what is right. That word warning there is the word nutheteo, which literally means to put or place in the mind of someone. And it has the more intensified meaning here of, of exhorting, of rebuking, of admonishing. I love how the New American Standard translates it of warning the person who is divisive to stop their divisive behavior. They have been urged that their actions are harmful to them and to the church. They've been warned. They're not ignorant about what they're doing. Even after warnings. Now, we need to put this text within the larger framework of another passage that we are very familiar with, Matthew 18. Okay, so keep your finger in Titus chapter 3 and go to Matthew 18 with me for a few minutes. Matthew 18. Some of us are very familiar with this text. Some of us are not. And I think it's very good that we would put that uh, Titus chapter 3 within the larger framework of Matthew 18, which is the process of how, what do we do when a, a professing believer is an ongoing unrepentance and how do we engage? How do we help that person? And I want you to keep the focus on how do we help that person? Because it needs to be motivated by love and concern for them and the glory of God. And I think oftentimes part of the problem with going to Matthew 18 is that we forget the context and the verses that came before. Look at Matthew 18, verse 12. What do you think, asks Jesus? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. And listen to this. So it is not the will of of your Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones perish. Think about that. Think about that. The heart behind what Jesus is about to instruct here for all believers is motivated by the heart for God that he does not desire even one of his little ones to perish. And so what do we do? The church gets involved, right? When there's someone who is in destructive, ongoing, unrepentant sin, what do we do? What do we do? This is the pattern of coming alongside of a professing believer in ongoing, unrepentant sin. The first thing that you do, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and show him his fault in private. Notice, in private. It's not after you have asked for everybody's, everybody's take on it, right? You've gone and bashed their character with somebody else. You go to them in private. If he or she listens to you, you have won your brother. So you go with them to them personally and privately. And your loving warning should include at least three things, I think. One, they need to be told specifically what they are doing. Don't leave it ambiguous. Why are you coming to them? What is the specific sin? And secondly, they need to be shown clearly how they are violating Scripture. How they are living in ongoing unrepentance and according to the Word of God. Because all of us have opinions. All of us have preferences about how people should be. It needs to be sin according to the Word of God. 
This is not you coming in alongside of somebody to rebuke them about how, you know, they're not keeping one of your personal pet peeves in line and they're not following after you and your opinions on particular preference issues. No. This is actual sin in the Bible. Thirdly, and don't forget this, you need to tell them why you are coming to them. Why? Because you care for them. Because you're concerned for their spiritual well-being. Because you prayed about this and you're concerned for the holiness in their lives and the holiness of the church and the glory of God. In other words, express to them your love. Your love. Too often, we're, so, we're concerned with putting people in their place. With giving them a piece of our mind. With showing them just how much we know. And we Bible-thump them. Even in our methodology, we come across self-righteous as if we have not taken the opportunity ourselves to examine ourselves, to see if truly we're coming out of concern for the glory of God, the purity of the church, and the good of that particular person. So we need to express love for them. Express and feel from the heart true concern for them. Biblical confrontation, beloved, needs to be done in love. So listen, keep your finger there in Matthew 18. I know you're going to run out of fingers eventually. Keep your finger in Titus 3, Matthew 18, and go with me to Galatians 6, okay? We're going to come back to Matthew chapter 18 right now, but go with me to Galatians 6. You and I need to come to this text again and again and again. When somebody is in sin, how do we engage them? What is our goal? Look at verse chapter 6 of verse 1. Brethren, speaking to believers here, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Notice, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Who is the spiritual person here? It's not some elite Christian, some perfect Christian, a person who doesn't have issues of themselves to deal with. This is another sinner saved by grace, who in the context of chapter 5 is a person who is walking in accordance with the Spirit. That you yourself are not walking in the flesh but that you are being led by the Spirit of God, practicing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, verses 22 to 23 of chapter 5. You're walking step in step with the Spirit of God. doesn't mean that you don't have struggles of your own or issues, but that you are humbly seeking to live uh, sensitive to the Spirit's leading in your life and obedience yourself. You shouldn't be a hypocritical person who comes alongside of somebody else to confront them on their sin, confront them on the speck in their eye while you have a log in your own eye. That kind of thing, right? You who are spiritual, notice, restore such a one. Here is the goal right here. Restorative goal. It's a restorative goal. The word restore there was used of mending nets, fishing nets. Or it was used medically of repairing a broken or fractured bone so as to bring a person back to full effectiveness. That's the idea. That's why we go to the doctor when we fracture a bone or we break a leg or, what, or any other limb, right? We get put on a cast. For what purpose? With the ultimate goal that you and I would be, would be able to function physically effectively again. We would be restored to full health again. That is the goal in the spiritual realm, beloved, of us coming to somebody and privately and saying, hey, brother, sister, I'm really concerned about this. And my desire is to help you. I'm not here to break you down. I'm not here to attack you. I'm not here to defend myself. I'm not here to come after you. I don't have a bone to pick with you. I'm really concerned about this issue clearly seen in Scripture. And I want to get your thoughts on it. You need to really think about this. Why? Because you want to help them. You want to see your brother or sister be spiritually healthy. You want to see them using their their gifts and abilities in the church. You want to see them walking in holiness. And that then informs the manner in which you come. Notice, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. In a spirit of gentleness. What is this driven by? This outward, gentle approach to coming alongside of somebody. This is, could be, by the way, in your home or in the church, right? What drives gentle, a gentle approach? Notice, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. I submit to you that a gentle approach flows from, is driven, compelled by an internal humility, a lowliness of mind. And not how you compare it to other people in the church, 
but in how you compare to the holiness of Almighty God. And that, when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God and who God is, we know that in the light of His holiness and who He is, we are nothing, right? We are nothing. And that leads to lowliness of mind, so that therefore we recognize that as we come to our brother and sister in Christ, we are vulnerable too. We are susceptible too. We are weak as well. We don't come self-righteously as if we don't have any issues of our own. We come humbly and even with fear and trepidation because we know that that's going to be us too someday if it hasn't already, right? Humility drives gentleness. And so that is the heart, beloved. Before you think about talking to someone about their sin, check your heart before the Lord. Check your heart. Check your heart. Now go back with me to Matthew 18. So, let's say that you go to somebody and they don't repent after the first private, personal step in verse 15. If they still don't repent after prayer and all of that, then you take, verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So there's a second step. Somebody is living living in ongoing, unrepentant sin, refusing to repent. You've shown them from God's Word in a gentle, loving manner, and it's clear they don't want to repent. Maybe they're committing fornication. Let's put it that way. Now you take two or three witnesses so that every fact may be confirmed. And that's not just for the protection of the one approaching that that is given there, but also for the one being approached. So that... There could be confirmation that there is sin indeed. And not only that, but that they've been dealt with rightly. And that that there is sin, they have truly not repented yet. So this guards someone from vilifying someone else. Or perhaps going after someone because they just don't like that person. And that is very possible amongst brothers and sisters in the Lord. Amongst the family of God. Sometimes we just don't like each other. And it shouldn't be that way. We should repent of that. But that happens in the church. And so this guards not only the one coming, but also the one being approached as every fact is confirmed. Now let's say that they still don't repent. That they still don't repent. And there's a third step in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Verse 17. Tell it to the church. This is best done through your shepherds in the church, the elders after prayer and discussion and confirmation can communicate what's going on with the whole church and encourage the whole church, listen, to lovingly, graciously, but forthrightly pursue the sinning brother or sister. To urgently plead with them to turn from their sin. Isn't that what happens even in a biological family? When one person within the family is is doing something destructive, all the family members come around them, right? Hey, you need to stop that. You're going to harm yourself. You're going to harm our family. Well, listen, in a greater way, in a perfect, unblemished way, in the church of God, the church is notified, the people of God are notified so that they would pursue the sinning brother or sister and urgently, lovingly plead with them to turn from their sin. The third step is only carried out after a period of time, best defined by the elders of a local church who are overseeing the process, hopefully. In the past, I can tell you this, that in my experience here at this church, the elders of our church have taken a considerable amount of time to pray and to discuss and to wrestle with the Word of God and to absolutely confirm that a professing believer continues in known, ongoing, unrepentant sin. I mean, I recall on two occasions the elders not pulling the trigger on publicly coming before the body, though many people in the church felt like we should come to to the body and that was the last straw and all of that. And we still wanted to confirm until weeks or months out of a desire to make sure that they had ample opportunity to repent. Finally, we came before you to present them before you. So then what happens after that third step that they still don't repent? Notice there is the fourth step in Matthew eighteen seventeen. It says in the middle of the verse, verse 17, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, that is the people of God, believers, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, this is administered by the elders of the church 
who are to excommunicate that professing believer who won't turn from his or her sin. Notice they are to treat him as a Gentile, which essentially meant a non-believer, a heathen. Or as a tax collector. Tax collectors in those days were viewed as traitors to their own Jewish people because they were working for the Roman government, stealing from their own people. So they are to be, to be uh, treated as a tax collector, ostracized. Because tax collectors were ostracized in those days. That's what happens with this, this person. They are to be excluded, rejected, shunned from the fellowship of believers, from experiencing the wonderful benefits of being a part of the body of Christ. This is really hard stuff, isn't it? Hard stuff. And we as elders, I can tell you, have shed a lot of tears over the last few years having to come and do this. It's very difficult to do this. We're not trying to drag our feet, but it's very difficult to do this. And yet Jesus said to do it out of love for them. This is Christ Himself giving us these instructions about how to love those and help those who are professing Christ, and yet they are in destructive sin, harming themselves, harming the church. They are an affront to the glory of God and shaming the witness of the church here on this earth. Why are we to do this? Is it to shame them? Is it to humiliate them, to to ruin their reputation, to gossip or slander about them? Absolutely not. We do so to get their attention so that they will recognize that they need to turn from their destructive sin that is not good for them, that is not good for their brothers and sisters in Christ, that is an affront to the glory of God, that does not keep the holiness and purity of the church intact. That's why. Now with that in mind, go back with me to Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. With that larger framework in mind. Notice that verse 10 says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Again, to reject means to shun, to stay away from, to not have fellowship with, which sounds very much like step four of church discipline, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 18, verse 17b. That's what it sounds like, which tells us to ostracize the unrepentant brother or sister, step four of church discipline. But that step four, as we just saw in Matthew 18, is only to happen after step three, right? which tells us to tell it to the church so that the church first, for a period of time, as defined by the elders of the church, prayerfully pursue and plead with the sinning brother or sister that they will turn from their sin. Step four only is to be done after an allotted amount of time is taken. But please note, Titus chapter 3, verse 10 says nothing about a third step, right? About telling it to the church. Why is this? Why is this? Ever think about that? Why? Did Paul forget what Jesus said in Matthew 18? Was Paul the apostle ignorant of what Jesus' instructions given to his disciples? Oopsies. I forgot step three. Oops. He'll do it in the revision to to Titus, right? The, The revised letter. To remind them of step three. Did Paul have a lapse of memory? Did he forget the crucial step of telling it to the church that they pursue the divisive person? Not at all. Not at all. Listen to me, beloved. Paul intentionally does not instruct Titus to tell it to the church so that the church pursues and pleads with that person because you don't tell the flock of God, the sheep, to go after someone who is acting like a wolf. Someone who is divisive. Someone who is factious. That's why. Matthew 18 describes the process for every professing believer to follow in the loving pursuit of another believer. And so does Titus. Chapter 3 verses 9 through 11 is for all believers. But it's specifically addressed, if you notice, to Titus as an elder who is dealing specifically with someone divisive in belief and more importantly, comprehensively in their behavior in the church so as to divide the church and harm the church. And if this sin is left unchecked and unresolved 
for too long, that person will bring harm and hurt the church of Jesus Christ. And so the clear sin of division is to be expedited, if you will. It needs to be dealt with swiftly and definitively, lest the people of God be hurt by the divisive individual. And if he does not repent, verse 10, it says, reject him or her. After a first and second warning, put him out of the fellowship so that he or she don't influence other people. And this is not to be done in a vindictive or unkind or humiliating way as is to make the person a, a topic of ridicule or scorn. Absolutely not. You do so for the purpose of the person's good, to protect the church from harm, to get their attention for their own good, that they might give glory to God in holiness. That's why you do it, with that intent and in the spirit of love. But definitively and swiftly, lest the church be harmed. This is consistent with what Romans sixteen seventeen says. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Paul was not was speaking there not just about doctrine, but the resulting behavior of these individuals that are being divisive so that they might turn away from them who are causing dissension. Definitively. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother, that is, avoid every brother who leads an unruly life. This is not just an ignorant person who doesn't know better. They are being unruly and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Keep away from them. Avoid them. Beloved, the church, by way of application, beginning with her leadership, is to take swift and definitive action against a professing believer who is functioning in a divisive way, who is causing disunity in the church. And all of us, should follow suit in wanting to see our brothers and sisters in Christ vibrant and spiritually healthy, loving Christ and loving other people so that we engage them in love, right? And it's not that the church has delivered a verdict on this man. Look at verse 11. This person has done this to himself or herself. Verse 11, you do this knowing that such a man or woman is perverted and is, present tense, sinning, being self-condemned. Listen, he, this person has delivered a verdict of condemnation upon himself. And that he is perverted, that is twisted. He has turned away from the truth living unruly, and is, present tense, sinning. He is in a continual state of creating division in the church, even after a first and second warning. See, again, some people see this action by the church and object, saying, this is unloving, this is judgmental or condemning treatment toward this person. But, beloved, look at the text. Verse 11 tells us that they have done this to themselves. They've chosen after warnings not to turn from their sin and their destructive behavior. They don't care about how their behavior even harms other people. And that is something that doesn't bring glory to God and that actually God feels righteous indignation against when His children are hurt. One commentator writes this, quote, Church discipline is the collective affirmation of the sentence already handed down by the culprit himself, end quote. The church is merely affirming or confirming the choice made by the individual in not turning from their sin. Now let me ask you this. How do we tell the difference between a factious or divisive person and simple spiritual immaturity or ignorance or just concerns or disagreements brought up by people in the church, by professing believers, how do, we, how do we tell the difference? Well, I think first we need to remember, and I got into this last week, that if we don't affirm cardinal core doctrine, essential doctrine, central things, then we don't have unity in the first place, right? Such as the affirmation of the final and ultimate authority of the Word of God for all matters of faith and practice, 
that no matter how many you, you may struggle with things and you may have your own opinions or baggage from the past and experiences and all of that, that ultimately the Word of God is your ultimate and final authority and you will submit yourself to what God says in His Word. That is a non-negotiable right there. Sola Scriptura. That the Word of God is the ultimate and final authority for all matters of faith and practice. And we submit ourselves to the Word of God because it is where God speaks to us. The other thing is the gospel. The good news concerning the person and the work of Christ. That we are sinners before a holy God. We cannot save ourselves. And that the only way of salvation is by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who exclusively can redeem humanity and has done so for many of us. He is the perfect God-man, 100% God, 100% man. You must affirm the deity of Christ. If you do not, that Jesus is God, 100%, then you cannot be saved. Because one who is not fully God and fully man cannot save sinners. He cannot qualify to die on the cross for our sins. You must believe in the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is in his all, all sufficiency. You must affirm the doctrine of the Trinity that God is one and he is three persons. The God and the three in one. We worship one God eternally existing in three persons. Can you slice and dice it completely? Is there mystery within that so that we can wrestle with the scriptures for the rest of our lives and never be able to understand? Absolutely. But do you affirm the basic doctrine of the Trinity that the Word of God affirms? Those things have to do with salvation. If we don't affirm those things, then we don't have unity, right? But then on the secondarily, on matters not pertinent to salvation... On secondary issues of doctrine. You know, how do you handle those things? To make it specific, if you're at this church and you have differences as far as secondary doctrinal matters, how do you handle those differences? Do you affirm the doctrinal statement of the church? So that you do not in any way, shape, or form, whether informally or formally, teach contrary to what the, to what the, 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 the church affirms on the doctrinal statement? You must do that. You must support if you are going to be here. Now, thirdly, it must be remembered that there will always be differences, right? There will always be differences of opinion, disagreements which will exist in the church regarding practical ministry, how the church is run, how we see certain social issues. There will always be differences, beloved, and I think that we need to embrace that, right? We don't all think the same about every single issue in, issue in life. And that is okay, that is okay. That disagreement exists, that we see thing, things differently from different angles, and that is okay beyond the essential things. But let me ask you this. How do you handle those differences with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you defer? Do you submit ultimately to the leadership of the church? And what we are trying to emphasize here, do you support do you support what is taking place, even if you have differences of opinions on different matters? How do you handle your differences? You know, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, You younger men, submit to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, even in our differences, in our preferences, not having to do with central issues, we need to be very careful where we take our disagreements, what, to what extent we take them. Now again, does this mean that you shouldn't have concerns or you won't have concerns, including leaders? Absolutely, we'll have concerns. There will be conversations. There will be questions asked. There will be discussions that will take place. There will be even disagreements after discussions. And you know what? That's okay. On issues that don't pertain to salvation or real, or issues that don't pertain to somebody in sin or some sin being promoted in the church. Where do you take that? Where do you take those disagreements? Do you defer? Do you submit? Do you support? Or let me ask you this. Do you continue to share your concerns to others? To promote your ideas? 
so that you create discontentment and dissatisfaction with the church, with the leadership, with the way that things are done. That you continue to do that with things that are not having to do with sin or central doctrinal issues. What do you do with those things? Some people create so discord very blatantly and very and in a very opinionated fashion and very explicitly. But other people do so in a very sneaky, subtle, and tactical kind of way. And that is really, really sad and destructive to the church. Beloved, may none of us be that kind of person. None of us. Just ask yourself, if you don't want to eventually become the divisive, factious person in the church as a professing believer, how do you respond to encouragements from your brothers and sisters in Christ now? Or even warnings concerning areas of your life that you may be in sin about. How do you respond? Are you humble? Are you teachable? Do you acknowledge the fact that you're weak and you're a sinner saved by grace? So there could be a sense in which you could be wrong in an area. What is your disposition and overall attitude to confrontation? To even encouragements? Again, remember that unless the issue of disagreement has to do with core essential doctrine or there is some sin involved, is there a relenting, deferring, and healthy desire in your heart for peace in Christ? Because you have your sights set on the greater progress of the gospel in your life and in the lives of other people in the church for the glory of God. See, we must continually, right, in such issues rise above our circumstances and even difficult relationships to, to, see, to, to um, remind ourselves that we ought to be zealous for the greater progress and advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such as Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where we read last week, that even though they were believing brothers who were, all, who were his rivals, they did not like him, they were not driven potentially by the right motivations, he says, as long as they are preaching Christ, you know what? I'm okay. May Christ be exalted who cares ultimately what they, what, what, how they are sinning against me? Obviously he cared. But the point there is he subordinated all any of his feelings, personal feelings or whatever, or disagreements with these individuals to the greater progress of the gospel that Jesus would be exalted in their lives. And we need to do the same thing, beloved. I want to remind us this morning that God hates disunity. God hates disunity discord and dissension and the list of things that god hates excuse me in proverbs chapter 6 and verse 19 the word of god says this a false witness who utters lies god hates and one who spreads strife amongst brothers proverbs chapter 16 verse 28 says that a perverse man spreads strife a twisted man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends and in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, one of the evidences of the deeds of the flesh are dissensions and factions or divisions in the church. Dissensions and factions. Let us give heed, beloved, to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to the one thing that Paul in jail, writing to the Philippians, wanted from his fellow brothers and sisters at Philippi. Philippians 1, 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And specifically, what does he mean by it? So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, he says, whether I come and see you again, it's been 10 years since he's seen them, or I don't see you again, here's the one thing I want to know. I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you, and that too from God. I find it ironic that he says in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, there are already opponents to the gospel. We have enough enemies already. Why in the world do brothers and sisters not preserve unity and together strive for the faith of the gospel? We already have enough enemies in this world. This is the one thing he wants to know from them. That they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel.
And later in chapter 2, he says, if you're going to do this, essentially, you have to be humble. You have to put others before yourself. And this is ultimately, following after the pattern of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 5 and following, Jesus Christ, who himself, being the eternal Son of God, laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes to come to earth, did not seize upon his privileges, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross. It says, that's who you need to imitate if you are going to walk in humility. I mean, if you are going to walk in, in unity. The lowliness of your Savior. May we be those kinds of people, beloved. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, such sobering truths. And yet such wonderful truths because, Lord, it's good to be reminded of, Father, the fact that sin in the church will take place. And, Lord, we are all weak and vulnerable to sin. Father, help us to watch and guard ourselves. And, Lord, help us to love you and love one another enough to speak the truth to one another in the context of biblical relationships, coming alongside of one another, Lord, to want to do good so that we would become more and more like Jesus. Father, help us to do it with grace, knowing that we have been shown much grace from you in Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.